Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. If you would stand with me, please, in reverence of the reading of God's word. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. I don't know if the, the thin crowd is my preaching or the Rona, probably both, people dropping like flies. But you are here, and God's word has something for you today, as it has something for us every time we open its pages. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that what we know not which is everything, it seems like sometimes, that you would teach us. And what we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us for Christ's sake. Amen. And amen. Commenting on verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 11, A.W. Pink says, in the verses which are now before us, the apostle calls attention to the marvelous power of a God-given faith to exercise, it, exercise itself in the presence of the most discouraging circumstances. Persevere in the face of the most formidable obstacles and trust God to do that which, under human reason, seemed utterly impossible. We're going to talk about the faith that Sarah demonstrated and that the author of Hebrews has now presented to us to mimic, to follow. He's commending her to us. There's two women mentioned in the great chapter of faith, one being Rahab and one being here, as we are talking about today, Sarah. I have two points for you and lots and lots and lots of subpoints, like a good Baptist, all right? The first point is simply this, Sarah received power. Sarah received power. And I never know if my notes actually make it to the sound guys, so I just trust. Sometimes I look up, there it is. A Sarah received power. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power. Pastor Matt reminded us last week that God is the initiator of faith. Hebrews 12, verse 2, that we'll come to here shortly, says that he, Jesus, is the author and the perfecter or the finisher of our faith. And we see here in this faith chapter, a ragtag band of people who in and of themselves are not much to speak of. The acts of faith that we see displayed here in them are not natural to themselves. They are supernatural. Those here mentioned could not do any of these things on their own. 
but they are recipients of God's power. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. They're nobodies until God calls them and God empowers them. And Sarah here is no different. If you believe that you in and of yourself are special without God's power given to you, without God's call and quickening to you, you are incredibly prideful. And God hates pride. It is only in God that we live and move and have our being. This is not some good character qualities that these people showed. This was divine power given from God for them to act in such a way. She receives power, verse 11 says, power to conceive specifically, even when she was past the age. This literally means that Sarah received the ability to conceive a child. And this is highlighting, unlike any other of the examples in this passage, highlighting the supernatural nature of faith. Faith is not something that only touches the spiritual realms, but it also touches flesh and blood. And I hope that you believe that and see that. Faith is not an abstract idea or this mythical feeling. It is a real power with action. And Sarah is unique in displaying this power. She receives, unlike anybody else in this, actual physical power in her body. Faith literally changes her physical body. Sarah could not have children. And she was past the age. That's a nice way of saying she was really old. Genesis 18, 11, which we'll look at quite a bit here in our time this morning. Moses adds, now Abraham and Sarah, speaking of both of them, were old and advanced in years, and the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. Not only had Sarah been infertile all of her life and unable to have children, she was now 90 and postmenopausal. She was twice over dead in respect to childbearing. Twice over dead in respect to childbearing. The promise here of becoming a mother in the next year that God gives her in Genesis 18 was absolutely impossible. And anybody looking at Sarah and knowing her story would have said it is absolutely absurd. It's impossible. It was impractical, nonsensical, unrealistic. And on the faith of Sarah, Pink says that this faith shows what an intensely practical thing that faith is. That it not only lifts up the soul to heaven, but it also draws down strength for the body on earth. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord over all? You can answer by saying amen. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord over your physical body? Does it always seem like that? For the infirmities that you face, some of the infirmities that you have been wrestling with for years or maybe even from your birth and no end in sight, do your prayers reflect 
the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord over my physical body? Do you really believe that the prayer of faith will save the sick, like James says in James 5.15? When you send a response, this text message in response, praying, what does that look like for you? Is it any more than just a good vibes that people send around? What is a good vibe anyway? But oftentimes that's what it amounts to. Do you actually believe that God has power to give strength to the physical body? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord over all afflictions of the body? From a cold to terminal cancer. Whether it's hearing loss, SI joint dysfunction, or like Sarah here, a barren womb, do you believe that Jesus is Lord over it? The scripture would say yes. And the believer should say, yes, we believe that he is Lord over our physical body, our physical circumstances. And if he is Lord over it, then he truly can heal it. He truly can act in miraculous ways in our physical body. Praise God for doctors. Praise God for medicine. By no means should we neglect these things. They are a gift of common grace. But believers do not put their hope ultimately in doctors or medications. Our hope is in the living God who formed us in our mother's womb. Oftentimes our prayers for healing do not reflect this though. It just seems too, well, supernatural. Something that doesn't touch real life. If you truly believe that Jesus is Lord over your physical body and that he has the power to heal you from any infirmity that he sees fit, do you really believe that? If you do, and the answer is yes, then you can rest in the fact that if he has not healed you, if he has not chosen to heal you, then he has a really, really, really good reason for not doing so. If he is Lord over you, in your physical circumstances, in your body, and he has not chosen to heal you, even though you have asked and you have searched, you have seen, is there any sinful reason that I am being afflicted of this sickness, which is a real thing? Are there any other reasons why? If Jesus is Lord over it and he has not healed you or relieved you of that affliction, then there's a really, really good reason why he has not done so. The suffering of the saints is not meaningless. You don't just suffer for no good reason. Yes, we live in a fallen world and we suffer the the effects of the fallen world. That's why we have mosquitoes, right? I don't know what they did before the fall, just like bring you nectar and like sing a song in your ear or something like what are they going to be like in the new heavens and the earth I have no idea better be something good or cats I mean don't get me started all right the suffering of the saints though is not meaningless Sarah's barrenness and the shame that would have come with that as she was unable to have children especially in a culture which highly prized having children and bearing a name, as should all cultures. This was something that afflicted her, but it was not meaningless. 
You may be delivered from this affliction soon. It might be years from now. Or maybe never in this life will you be delivered from that affliction. But you can be sure of this. It is not meaningless. It is working in you for your sanctification and for a future weight of glory. And your prayer should always be like the leper in Matthew 8 who said this, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I believe that kind of a prayer, I truly believe this, friends, that that kind of a prayer is often met by our Lord as he answered the leper. I will. Be clean. But if not, and you notice the leper's prayer, if you will, you can make me clean. James says that the reason that you do not have in this area is because either you are don't, because you don't ask at all, if you're relying on other things, you don't ask at all, or you are asking wrongly. Um, I want to break some more of this down in cold pizza tomorrow, so you guys can look for that. Well, what does this actually look like? The barrenness of Sarah's womb is a heavy burden for her to bear. God created woman to produce life. And I've already, as I've already mentioned, in this ancient culture, this being childless would have given her a sense of worthlessness. A sense of worthlessness and shame. It's a sad and shameful thing to see the trend in our culture for women who can have children or are choosing not to. I believe that for Christian women, this is sinful, and there are few biblical warrants to not have children. Sarah longed to have a child. She wanted to be able to produce an heir. And our text says that by faith, she received power to conceive even when she was past age. That's amazing. That's supernatural. Do we actually believe that this happened? This must have been incredibly exciting news for her. She has longed for this. And God came to her husband, as we learned last week, and called him out. And, okay, I'll go and we'll live in the tents and, and we'll wander towards this promised land. And at the news of receiving a child, and she's already aware of this idea that somehow God is supposed to give to Abraham descendants that outnumber the stars and the sand— how is that going to happen with a wife who is 90 years old and can never have children? Not sure. But now, she has been given the promise. Amazing. She must have been so excited and thankful at the news. Let's turn over to Genesis 18. Turn over in your Bibles to Genesis 18. We'll look at verses 9 and 10 and see her amazing response to this amazing news. Some special messengers showed up to speak with them. They showed them hospitality. One of those we believe is God himself, Yahweh himself. Verse 9, and they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And Abraham answering said, she is in the tent. Verse 10, and the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah, super excited full of faith, believes this, right? Sarah, who was listening at the tent behind him, standing behind the Lord, do you know what her response was? What did Sarah do? Some of you are mouthing it. What did she do? She laughed. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, am I who am worn out, and my Lord is old? Shall I receive pleasure? What causes Sarah in this moment 
to laugh at the promise of God? What causes you to laugh at the promise of God? Have you ever read in the scriptures the truth and the promises of God and in your heart chuckled to yourself saying, that's impossible. That's absolutely absurd. That's not real life. That's a nice idea. And sure, in a perfect world. Let me remind you, these people did not live in a perfect world. They're suffering the effects of the fall. Sarah's barrenness is a part of the effects of the fall, but God is working a greater story in that. Here's some reasons. Here's some reasons that we laugh at the promise of God. Number one, reason opposes the promise. Reason opposes the promise. The circumstances, the facts do not line up with the promise. You say they're just not realistic. But perhaps you are just trying to justify your weak faith by saying, well, they're just not realistic. Some of you refuse to act until you know all the details. You must make sense of it. This has to make sense to me. Like I have like a scientific facts kind of brain. Like I got to see it to believe it kind of a person. And oftentimes, that can be an excuse for weak faith. Be careful that that is not simply unbelief. Our God is a God of reason. Any truth is God's truth, ultimately. But the scripture says that God's ways are higher than our ways. God works in what kind of a way? A mysterious way to us. Look at the faith chapter. Look at these people. They were nuts. They're just, a, like without God, they're just a bunch of random losers. And God says, hmm, that looks like a great group of people. And I mean this endearingly, but when I look at you, I think the same thing. Right? Without Christ, where would you be? But reason just, you know, if you look at your life in the past and you ask a friend, well, would that person be sitting in these pews today and leading their family in such a way and so on and so forth? No. That's just not realistic. I mean, have you seen them? Have you talked to them? But now look what God has done. Praise his name. You know, people often say, well, what about doubting Thomas? He said he wouldn't believe until he had solid proof, and Jesus gave that to him. Yeah, he was, he was given that, of course, but you know what? We who sit here today are given more proof than Thomas himself. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the helper that Jesus had promised. We have every word pertaining to life and godliness. We have the church. We have more, I would argue, than Thomas himself. And the heart that says to God, I will not act until it is proved to me, is a rebellious heart, by the way. God just shows mercy to Thomas. He just shows kindness to him. As he shows it often to us. But that's not a normative posture in which we should take. Second Peter 1, 3 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have this knowledge. Martin Luther says, if you would trust God, you must learn to crucify the question, how? If you would trust God, you must learn to crucify the question, how? 
So reason opposed to the promise is just not practical. Number two, fear opposes the promise. Okay, Lord, I want to be really sure about the promise before I act. We act in our faith like somebody walking out on thin ice. If you will show yourself to be faithful just in the next step, then I will follow. And sometimes that's the way faith works. But our heart is overcome by fear. Again, in an unbelieving posture, we ask God to prove himself to us in a rebellious, weak-hearted way. And you say you're exercising wisdom about this situation. But perhaps you're just trying to justify the fact that you need God to prove everything to you before moving forward. You need to see the end from the beginning, which is a desire to be God, by the way. I have to see it all. Which God has given it all to you. But it never seems to be enough. It was only when the divine promise was repeated to Sarah, we see grace here to her. But, but God just continues to tell her the same thing. He didn't say, let me give you all these proofs now. He just keeps saying to her, you're going to have a baby. Well, I need more proof. Like, can you kind of can sure up the foundation over here? And God's no, you're going to have a baby. That's the promise. And in God's kindness, he continues to reiterate this promise. He gives it to Abraham. Now he gives it to, to Sarah. It's only when the divine promise was repeated that her faith began to act. It was her faith that was sparked. It's often before faith is established in our hearts that there's this conflict. This conflict like she had. Well, shall I have a child when I'm old? Think says, just as when fire is kindled, the smoke is seen before the flame, so ere the heart rests upon the word where there is doubting and fear before. There's a smoke that is seen and then the fire is ignited. And God in his grace and mercy is patient and long-suffering with stiff-necked, stubborn people. But this is not the posture that we should take before God. We should have one of confident belief in him. If fear is causing the spark to be dampened. Your fear and doubt is like this smoldering wood. Act. In fear, you stand back making sure that everything is fine. But the scripture has encouraged us to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like our kids. I mean, like, we have a lot of tomatoes now, like Lord of the Tomatoes at my house. And I'm like, hey, boys, you know, back when we first introduced them to tomatoes, like, you want some tomatoes? Um, no, I, I don't like tomatoes. Have you ever eaten a tomato? Well, no. How do you know that you don't like tomatoes? I just don't like tomatoes. Well, you've never tried a tomato. How about you try one and see if you like it or not? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Recall, has the Lord ever let you down, like truly? Something that Brent and I always say in our household is that we have never lacked any good thing. I mean, there's plenty of times that there are things that I wanted. I lacked things that I wanted. Or I really wish I could have desired to have. But they were simply extra blessings on top of what I was already given to, above and beyond what God should give 
a wretched sinner. But he delights to give good gifts to his children. This is the same idea in, in, in Malachi where it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Bring it in, the gifts and the offerings, and test me. He says, therefore, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven and pour down upon you a blessing until there is no more need. Taste and see, test, and see that the Lord is good. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Psalms 121, lift up your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of what? Heaven and earth. Fear stands in opposition to believing the promise and acting. And this highlights the faithfulness of God that he continues to reiterate the promise to her to a fearful and a stubborn woman. And he, he continues to repeat the promise to us, a fearful and stubborn people. And this should encourage preachers and parents of unbelieving children and spouses of unbelieving spouses as they continue to pray and ask God to work that the smoldering embers would be sparked into real genuine faith. Trust that the Lord will act and that he is long-suffering he has a long fuse. His mercy will not always hold back. His wrath will not always hold back. But there is still time that we should repent and pray that the smoldering wood would be a blazing bonfire. Number three, her will opposes the promise. Her will opposes the promise, trying to do God's will in our own way, specifically. In the 25 years between the time of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, Abraham and Sarah had a few of their own ideas how they might actually facilitate the fulfillment of God's promise. I know none of you have ever done this before. I prefer it on my timeline, God. I prefer the blessing, but let it be on my terms. My timeline, sure, I'll be a Christian, but don't ask me to go public or preach the gospel or stand for the truth or suffer at all. Like, I just want to wear the jersey, but I don't want to put any skin in the game. Abraham thought that his steward, Eliezer, would become the heir of the promise and pass it on for him. Another thing that happened was that Abraham thought that he could have an heir conceived by Sarah's slave, Hagar. What a mess that was. Abraham abdicated his leadership role and caved to Sarah's manipulation, and the world is still suffering the consequences of that sin. Listen, you cannot summon the blessing of God apart from the statutes of God. God's will must be done in God's way. Abraham believed that God would make good on his promise, but was tempted in the time in between the fulfillment to take into his own hands how to make it happen. He grabbed the reins. Sarah grabs the reins by her own hands and says, I, I want the blessing of God, but I want it done in my way on my timeline. He got impatient. Sarah got impatient. Faith and hope must be walked out in patient endurance, trusting that God has promised and he has also dictated how the promise will be realized. It's God's will, God's way. 
And how do we know what God hath required? Catechism says, we read of it in his holy word. Well, I don't know how this is supposed to come about. Because you neglect your Bible and the putting into practice of the things that you read therein. God's promises are fulfilled by the keeping of God's precepts. If God has called you to follow him, he will provide the means to get there. So trust him. But these means in which God gives us often calls us or tempt us to want to laugh in his face. And you know what this is a characteristic of? Looking at the means and the promises of God and laughing, that's a characteristic of pagans. What did the people do when they saw Noah building a giant boat in his backyard? They laughed and mocked. And how often do you do the same thing? When Goliath looks down at a little shepherd boy, what does he do? He mocks and laughs. Because there is no possible human way that this little shepherd boy can beat this mighty warrior. Do not look to what is seen, but what is unseen. The Pharisees did the same thing when they saw Jesus hanging upon a cross. They mocked and they laughed. This is a result, all these things are a result of the fall and the effects of sin. And in the face of the promise of God, what we are tempted to listen to is the same thing that our mother Eve was tempted to listen to and did. Did God really say? Did he really say? Can you really trust him? Is he really good? Is he holding out on you? What a mean and spiteful God that would not let you eat of this tree. When you have a whole other garden. Let me give a word to husbands on this. We've been talking about Sarah laughing at the promise of God, but when Abraham found out, he laughed as well. Some commentators said he was just so happy. From my study, I don't think he was so happy. I think he was like, <laughs> are you kidding me? That ain't happening. He laughed so hard, he said it fell on his face. Um, in Genesis 17. When, when Sarah presented Hagar to him, he failed to tell his wife, no. Just like Adam had failed to tell Eve, no. The effects of the fall cause us to doubt the promise of God in our marriages. We're seeing it played out here in, in this old patriarch and his wife. And the same things come to us in our families. Did God really say? The means in which God has given you to fulfill this promise seem laughable? Abraham should have told his wife no, just like Adam should have told his wife no. There's this song I've been listening to this week. It's like a country folk song, and it's, he's talking about his father working hard jobs and taking care of them, and he says... His way, speaking of his father, to keep the wolves away was to cut their tongues out before they had a chance to howl. I would say, husbands, fathers, cut the tongue out of the snake before he has an opportunity to speak to your bride and to your children. And how do you do that? By bathing them in the word of God and the truth. So that when the counterfeit lie is presented in front of them, so that when God 
comes and says, this miraculous thing will be done for you, that they do not laugh, but they laugh with rejoicing. You see, pagans laughing at God's promises. Don't let your family follow suit. You lead your wife, brothers. Lead her well, lead her poorly, but you will still lead her. And you must do everything in your power to lead your wife in holiness. Some of you are tired at your wives laughing at the promise of God. But it's like that scene from, remember the Titans? Remember that movie? Remember the Titans? Great movie. It's like that scene. If you're, if you're the f- husband in here who's tired at your wife laughing at the promise of God, or always having to be convinced and always having to pull them across, I would encourage you to go watch Remember the Titans, especially this one part. Gary, the captain of the football team, says to Julius, Seaman, that's the worst attitude I've ever heard. And Julius answers, well, attitude reflects leadership, Captain. Brothers, it's your responsibility to lead your wife in holiness. Your wife may be stubborn, but she's your stubborn wife. You married her. And God has given... Some of you guys just nudged your wives. God has... We take uh, counseling every day, 9 to 5. God has given her to you as your responsibility. Lead her in holiness. Stop telling her you're going to step up and just do it. Some of you are, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change that, babe. I'm going to step up in that area. Stop telling her you're going to do it and just do it. Just step up. I get tired of hearing men talk about how they're going to step up. I get tired of men talking about how they've been reading these books and they got stacks of books about fatherhood and you know being a husband next to their book and they never do anything with it. They think just because their wife has kicked them out, not kicked them out yet because they got a book on submission next to the bed is a good sign. Maybe it is. But brothers, you've got to put this stuff into practice. Like, listen, don't add another book to your stack until you take your wife's hands and pray with her before you go to bed and when you wake up and 10 minutes of reading the scripture to her. Start there. Reading some scripture with your kids at the breakfast table and memorizing it. Let's just start there. Bathe her and your children in the truth. A word to you wives. The fear that the promise would not be fulfilled if it was left up to Abraham. So Sarah disregarded God's order of the home and tried to take the situation into her own hands by manipulating her husband into taking her slave girl, Hagar. Have you ladies ever felt that before? Well, the promise will not be fulfilled if it's left up to my husband. My wife's shaking her head. Because that's a real temptation that we have talked about this week. And there are plenty of things that I have had to take accountability for in the previous comments I made to to the men. But for fear that if it's left up to him, Sarah took into her own hands, trying to fulfill God's promise, and gave to Abraham her slave, Hagar. A good question for you, sisters, is to ask yourself and ask your husband, 
what Hagar's do I tend to present to my husband when I feel like he's just not cutting it? What Hagar's do I tend to present to my husband when I feel like he's just not cutting it? Do you gaslight him? Do you try to feminize him? Do you use the kids against him? Do you remind him often of his past failures and lack of leadership, even though he has confessed and repented of them? Do you have an arsenal ready at hand for those things to throw at him, to keep him in shame, so that you ultimately can wield that shame to your advantage? Are you only willing to be led the way that you want to go? Grew up with horses, and there were times, even with the best behaved horses, that if they didn't want to go a certain way, it wasn't happening. Like, this wasn't going to happen. And oftentimes, wives only want to be led the way that they want to be led. Sure, babe, I'll submit and obey, but only if you lead me in the way that I want to go, that I think is best. Listen, God has a structure. God has an order for marriage and for the home. You cannot try to manipulate God's promise apart from the precepts and the statutes and the commands and the orders that he has set up. And yet how often does this take place under our very roofs? It happened here to Abraham and his wife. God has set up a structure for the home. And if we're going to walk in accordance to the will of God, then these things must be done in God's way. Cold pizza is going to be packed tomorrow, by the way. <laughs> And I do, believe that, I do believe that Sarah was in this state when she hears the promise. I do believe she's in this state partly because of her husband's poor leadership. I do believe that. But by the time Sarah heard the promise in the tent and laughed, I think that Abraham had grown in his faith at the point that he had laughed in chapter 17. I think he grew in his faith, and Sarah was not at the place where her husband was. She, she had not grown in her faith. The fact that she's rebuked by the Lord indicates that she had heard the promise from her husband, that she, but she had persisted in unbelief. So your husband's sisters, is responsible to lead you, but you are also responsible to cultivate your own personal holiness. Submitting to your husband and letting him take the responsibility is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for your own personal holiness. You must know Love and obey Jesus on your own two feet. Being a godly woman who submits to her husband does not look like a silly little girl who acts like they don't know what to do or have any ideas unless they go ask their husband. Study the scriptures. Know the truth. It may be it said of you, as it is said of the Proverbs 31 woman, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Know your Lord. Know his promises. Stand upon his promises. And know that he is going to continue to sanctify your unbelief and be patient with you. But you must also fan the flame of faith, that smoldering ember, into fire. God's sanctification and our process in that is like pedals on a bicycle. Right? They work together. By God's grace, Sarah grows in this. She grows despite Abraham's shortcoming. Sarah still honors Abraham by using the title of dignity and respect 
my Lord. She calls him my Lord. And 1 Peter 3, 6 commends Sarah's pattern of submitting and obeying her husband as an example for all Christian wives to follow. Ladies, your submission and trust for your husband can't be, I will submit and follow when I am fully convinced that he is right. Your submission to your husband will show what kind of submission and trust you have for the Lord. This is why you must grow in your own personal holiness before the Lord and trusting him. Because faith does not ask God to see every tiny detail before obeying. Faith trusts that God knows all the details, and so therefore we can obey. Wanting to know the end from the beginning, as I've already said, is wanting to be God. Trust the process that God has laid out. Oftentimes when I don't understand the end from the beginning, and I'm not quite sure what God is doing in the midst of this, and I'm like, I don't see what possible good could come out of this. I'm reminded of the uh, Philadelphia 76ers basketball team's motto, trust the process. Trust the process. What does that mean? It means rebound. It means work as a team. It means practice. Trust the play defense. Trust the process. Go to practice. Trust the process. Do the fundamentals. Do the basics. And trust God. Of course it's going to be hard. Listen, ladies, of course it's going to be hard. And it does not seem natural. That's why I've already said it is supernatural. And Sarah's situation and her faith shows, I think, beyond all the others, the supernatural character and nature of faith. Listen, your pastors are under no illusion that there are any perfect husbands in this church, including us. But a godly wife can joyfully submit to an imperfect husband because her trust is not ultimately in in him, but it is in a perfect God. You can trust an imperfect husband who is striving to walk in sanctification and newness of life and striving for holiness because your trust is not ultimately in him. Your trust is in a perfect God. Number four, outward conformity with inner rebellion stands in opposition to the promise. Outward conformity with inner rebellion stands in opposition to the promise. The passage here in Genesis says that Sarah laughed inwardly in unbelief. Sarah's response was silent, a, a laugh of the heart. And this is, listen, this is different. This is different than, you know, we often say here at CTL, um, duty is not dirty. Sometimes you have to do the work even though you don't feel like it. Oftentimes, and, and what is rampant in our culture right now, especially in big evangelicalism and soft churches, is if you don't feel like it, and if there's no joy there, then you shouldn't do it and something's wrong. No, of course it's hard. Of course it's hard to submit to an imperfect husband. Of course it's hard to lead a stubborn wife. Of course it's hard to parent little demon children. It's hard. Of course it's hard. It is death to the flesh. That's the call of the gospel. So I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about something different. It's different than walking in obedience when you don't feel like it. I'm talking about an outward conformity with an inward rebellion. An outward conformity with an inward rebellion. I'm talking about hypocrisy. True faith is not simply behavior modification, but heart transformation. Now, you might have to walk in faith and obedience, trusting in the Lord when you don't feel like it. And the, the, the feelings of affection will follow. That's perfectly fine. 
But let's be honest about those things. Don't slap a cheesy grin on your face. Don't be like the kid who, when his parents said, hey, sit down in the back of the car, he sat down and he looked at him and he said, I'm still standing up in my heart. Don't be like that kid. True faith is not simply behavior modification, but it is heart transformation. Outward submission to your husband with inward rebellion, resentment, and anger does not honor God. It's going to be hard for sure, but we must strive to obey God with a happy heart. This is the love Jesus part. This is the affections that grow in love for Jesus. Your law, Psalms 119, 174 says, is a delight. I delight in your law. Sarah here received grace. Like what the, Lord, the Lord could have just said, you know what, forget it. I'll go find a more willing vessel. Forget these stubborn people. But he doesn't. Sarah receives grace. All of these things oppose the promise of God's grace. It opposed them, but God's grace overcame Sarah's unbelief. Scripture says in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, what? Grace much more abounds. Sarah was hidden in the tent from the men that were there. Yahweh had his back to her. Her response did not go unnoticed by the Lord. In that moment, the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh? And say, I shall indeed, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? God in his grace did not let Sarah get away with her unbelief. Aren't you thankful for that? God sanctifies you even in spite of you. God's grace will not let you get away with your unbelief. He will rebuke you, call you to repentance. And in this moment, this is where Sarah's faith is kindled. This is where the smoldering embers begin to be ignited. Because in this moment, Sarah understands that the thoughts that she uttered in her heart were fully known to the Lord. One commentator says, whereas Hagar had learned that God sees her, now Sarah learned that God sees inside of her. And Sarah was doused with the reality that God is omniscient, all-knowing, and the Lord fans into flame the smoldering wood of her heart and says to her in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And faith is sparked in Sarah with the thought that if God knows all things, even the secrets of my heart, then he knows how this barren womb will produce life. I can trust him. Sarah came to believe that nothing is too hard, literally nothing is too wonderful or too surpassing or too incredible, what that means for the Lord. And 12 months later, she experienced the absolutely incredible just as God had promised. God's grace overcame her unbelief. It reminds me of another phrase, just as he said he would. He is risen, just as he told you he would. Did you forget? But the circumstances, I saw him die. Faith is not natural, but supernatural. The Lord gives faith. He ignites the flame. 
but he has given us a part to play in fanning the flames, all right, into faith. The author of Hebrews shows us how Sarah fanned into flame her faith. How she went from being in the tent who had already manipulated all these situations and now she's in the tent with Yahweh standing there saying, you will have a child and she laughs. She goes from that point to being commended to us as somebody we should follow in the faith. How did she do that? Well, obviously we see that it's God's grace, but here's her part that she played. The end of verse 11, of Hebrews 11. Since she considered him who had promised, since she had considered him who had promised. Philip's paraphrase says she could do this because she believed the one who had given the promise was utterly trustworthy. She considered. She received power from the Lord. It's God's grace that ignites the flame, ultimately. And her part to play was that she considered. God gave power. She considered. You with me? All right. Sarah considered Jesus. Sarah considered Jesus. Sarah took the faithfulness of God and the obstacles and she weighed them in the balance. All right? So how do you consider him faithful? How do we cultivate the, the confidence of Sarah's faith? I'll give you three things and we'll be done. Number one, Sarah's faith looked the promise instead of the obstacle. Sarah's faith looked the promise instead of the obstacle. Sarah learned to not look at God's promise through the mist of interposing obstacles, but instead view the difficulties and hindrances through the clear light of God's promise. Stick with me on this. She did not look at God's promise through the lens of the obstacles but she instead looked at the obstacles through the lens of God's promise. Do you see the difference? Some of you aren't sure. Have you ever seen a little kid who gets a pair of binoculars and they turn in the wrong way and look through them? They got the small end, or the big end, I should say, the big end and the small ends down here. And they're like, I can't see anything. And you pick up those binoculars and you look through, and of course you can't see anything. It's a thousand miles away. Every time we go to the Boonshoft, um, some of my, Judas still does this sometimes. He picks them up, and he's like, oh, right, turns them around, trying to look at the birds. I don't see the bird, and the bird's right there, literally right there, filling its face full of seed. Like, I can't see the bird, and the glasses are pressed to the glass. Because you're looking at the thing through the wrong end of the binoculars. You're looking at the promise of God through the lens of everything that stands in its way. Instead of taking the promise of God and letting that be the filter by which you look at all the obstacles, turn those suckers around. Look at the obstacles through the lens of the promise. Instead of holding up the obstacles and saying, I'm going to try to look through all the obstacles and see the promise. No, instead look through the promise at the obstacles. Turn those suckers around. This is the secret to everybody in chapter 11. Anybody that was able to do anything for God's glory by faith in chapter 11 is because they looked at all the obstacles that stood in front of them through the lens of the promise that God had given. They kept their minds stayed upon the promise. This is why a shepherd boy boasted that he would cut off a giant's head. 
because he saw through the lens of heaven. Everybody standing around sees a giant warrior and a little shepherd boy. But David's faith sees a giant God who made the heavens and the earth, and so it's not a fair fight. It was the old, old, um, the old uh, sermon that some guy preached, David and the dwarf, or something like that, like through the lens of heaven, that's how it actually was. Goliath stood no chance because David chose to look at the situation, at the impossible human situation through the lens of God's promise instead of the other way around. He did not consider his armor. He did not consider his helmet. Sarah considered God who was faithful even though she was barren. She looked at the promise And through the promise, her obstacles seemed to be nothing at all. We have such pessimistic Christianity rampant in our culture today. Doom and gloom, you know, just everybody, you know, wanting around, not happy whatsoever, or filled with the joy of the Lord. It's because we have such a doom and gloom outlook on what has actually happened. It's because we have not read our Bibles and put into practice that, hey, Jesus has already won and given us all power that every knee will bow and every tongue should confess. And that starts right now, not when he shows up later, like right now. So I can go out in boldness knowing that my evangelistic efforts have already been ordained by the sovereign hand of God, therefore they will come to pass. Right? That I can trust my, my husband who is not perfect but is walking in holiness. And even though there seems like lots of obstacles there, as I trust God's way of doing things, as I trust his precepts, as I love his law and I submit to his way of doing things, that I see beauty unfold. As I take responsibility for my family as a father and a husband, even though it is hard, I see the blessings of God overflowing in the face of things that seem completely absurd. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Pink says, this, the idea, the idea of God's promise, this is sufficient for the heart to rest upon. The promise of God is sufficient, more than sufficient for your heart to rest upon. Faith will cheerfully leave, (laughs) faith will cheerfully leave it. That's the wrong thing, my bad. He says that faith is sufficient for the heart resting, Uh, faith is, uh, the promise is sufficient for our heart to rest upon. There you go, can't read my own writing. Number two. Sarah's faith saw beyond the promise. Two more. Sarah's faith saw beyond the promise. Sarah did not despise the day of small beginnings. Sarah saw this small beginning that would grow into something massive, something bigger than her. Some of the reason that you cannot trust the promises of God is because you see everything through the lens of you. Right? It's all about me. But Sarah realizes that she's a very small piece in this grander story. Something bigger than her was happening. Like a stone, Pink says, thrown into a lake that produces ever-enlarging circles on rippling waters. So faith issues in fruit 
which increases from generation to generation to generation. One child would produce many. Do you see the one-to-many language of, of verse 12? In Hebrews 11, therefore by one man and him as good as dead. Just in case you thought that um, God wasn't powerful, Sarah is dead in this respect, and so is Abraham. Let me remind you, therefore by one man and him as good as dead, there were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God did not only promise that Sarah's dead womb would have one son, but that that son from her dead womb would spring forth a multitude greater than the stars of heaven and the grains of sea on the seashore. This one to many, you have to see something bigger. You have to see something greater. You see this theme here, by one son, by one old couple, many will be blessed. This theme of by one man's sin, sin enters the world, by one man's righteousness, by one man's death, many sons and daughters brought to glory. Jesus said himself that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took out and sowed in his field. This is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than the gar- all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. But often we despise the days of small beginnings. We despise the washing of pots and the changing of diapers and the giving of spankings and the reading of scripture to our families and the every Sunday gathering with the saints. We despise those things, saying, what is this doing? It is doing something great for the kingdom. And you have to see beyond. Here at Christ the Lord, we are building something greater that will last for generations. That's my desire. My desire is to see a a, a city transform for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that, that the city of Dayton would bow the knee to King Jesus in every political office, in every church, and in every home. I don't think I'm going to see that in my lifetime. I'm going to work really hard for it, but I'm going to train these two boys, and I'm going to train you to walk in newness of life and to equip you. We have to think of something greater, bigger, beyond us. Colossians 2, 9, what has eyes seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Give what God, take what God has given you, Don't go and bury it, but use it. You will see a mighty harvest more than you could ever imagine. Every hammer swing, how is it, remember Noah? How is this doing anything? One more nail, one more nail, one more nail. When the rain started coming, he was really thankful for his faithfulness. Right? Because all those thousands of nails held that thing together. We have... Noah to thank for his faithfulness. One more nail, one more nail, one more nail. This is where the rubber meets the road, guys, or where real faith meets real life. Because this is where we begin to grow weary in doing good. This is where we are tempted to believe the lie, did God really say? And this is when we are tempted to take the reins into our own hands. Often the hardest part of faith is the time in between 
There's the time when the promise is given and the promise is fulfillment. And there's a time in between there. It's, it, it always, it's always funny to me, like, in the scriptures when somebody encounters an angel or the Lord calls them to something, like a Gideon or, you know, uh, I think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So, so Gabriel shows up and he gives her this, here, I am the Lord's a handmaiden, what, you know, do unto me as the Lord has commanded. And he's like, cool. And he leaves. She's got to go home and tell her family. She's got to go live real life, trusting in the promise. And that's the time when our faith is tested. That's the time when we want to take the reins into our own hands. And often the hardest part of our faith is that time in between the promise being given and the promise fulfilled. And for Sarah here, it makes me think about the, the promise. So she is promised that she will be the mother of a nation. She, they are promised a promised land. And Sarah did not, not see that. But she believed in generations to come that would come from her one son. Because the scripture later says here, all these died in faith, not seeing the promise fully fulfilled. Like there, there's, there's more that will be talked about that, like looking forward to Christ, but they don't see that fully fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah were promised a land of their own and a vast family, and Sarah dies in the tent. Right? Like she doesn't get to see it fully fulfilled. But she saw something greater than herself, a better country, and a city whose builder and maker is God. Sarah took her assignment from God with joy and did her part. And that's what God is calling you to do. Sarah needs now faith for the hardships of the pregnancy. Okay, God has given, there's the baby, like just as the Lord had said. But now she's an old woman with a pregnancy. Do you think there were fears and doubts about miscarriage? What about childbirth? What about having to keep up with a baby at an old age? Like she needs faith and strength for these moments. And if God, listen, if God, if you believe that God is the author and the finisher of your faith, then he is also the sustainer in between. Like he will give you the means and the strength to be sustained in the midst of the trial. And for this, Calvin says, we should ask God to increase our hope when it is small, awaken it when it is dormant, confirm it when it is wavering, and strengthen it when it is weak, and raise it up when it is overthrown. I already quoted this, but this is where you have to, you know, Pastor Rusty has said before, like, literally go outside and look at the heavens. Go get up somewhere high and look out. I remember being with Pastor Russ during a difficult time in our church's history, and we were in San Diego, California, standing on this little peninsula, looking out at the vast ocean, and Russ turns to me and he says, God holds all of that in the palm of his hand. And if God sustains that, he will sustain us. I said, amen, brother. Amen. This is, why, this is why weary travelers on the way to the temple in Jerusalem were called to lift up their eyes to the hills. And they saw the hills, and it was overwhelming, but they looked at the hills, not the obstacle, but they looked and saw the maker of heaven and earth, who was the one who made the hill, who was their helper and would sustain them. Where does my help come from? From the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. For those of you who are going through childbearing right now, bearing children, precious life, God will sustain you. Lift your eyes to the hills 
and see the obstacles and see beyond to the God who made them, the God who put that baby in you, who has given that baby to you to steward, but ultimately holds it in his own hand. And if he has called you to this task, then he will supply everything you need to accomplish this task. Number three, the last one, Sarah's faith was in God. Quite simple. So, Sarah's faith looked to the promise instead of the obstacle. Sarah's faith saw beyond the promise. Something bigger. Number three, Sarah's faith was in God. This is the key. When Sarah thought about the things promised, it seemed too good to be true. Right? It's just too good to be true. It's too remarkable, too radical, too impossible, and that is true. It's too impossible for Sarah to have a baby in her old age. But with God, what? All things are possible. Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. But with God, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Sarah believed this impossible promise because she fixed her eyes on the one who does the impossible. So fix your eyes on the promise, but see beyond the promise to the actual one who makes the promise. Pink says she took her thoughts of all as secondary, as casting them upon God himself. This idea of considering Jesus is not unfamiliar to us. The author has already said in Hebrews 3, 1 and 2, Therefore, holy brothers, as you share in a heavenly calling, consider who? Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. John Owen says, The formal object of faith in the divine promise is not the things promised in the first place but in God himself. It is in God himself where we find true peace and true rest. Listen, as our hearts believingly ponder the divine attributes of Almighty God, our smoldering unbelief is fanned into the flame of faith and it burns hot with the fuel that he who promised is faithful. It is the mind who has stayed upon Jehovah himself that is fully blessed. It is in God himself that we find perfect peace and rest. And as we wait for the fulfillment of the promised, we must joyfully contemplate who God is and what he has done. And as it was with Sarah, so it is with us. Every promise of God is reinforced by this consideration. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is no. So Sarah learned that the promise would come to pass because God said it would. And he is faithful to his promise. It is not rocket science. 
This is the reason that this ragtag band of people could do anything. They stumbled and doubted, but God was faithful. The reason that they are, con- they are commended to us as heroes of the faith is that they believed God was the faithful one, and they were not. It was not the quality of Sarah's faith. It was the object of her faith that brought these things to pass, and her faith burned bright because of that, because she trusted in he who was able to do the impossible. And this is what enabled her to walk in obedience to the call that God had given her. God is faithful. This is the confession that we hold fast to. And we can boast in this hope, in confidence, that God can do the impossible. And in closing, I'd mention back in Genesis 18, it's interesting. I didn't read this earlier, but when Yahweh hears her laugh in her heart and confronts her, rebukes her, she says, it says, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. You did laugh. I guess I would say this, wherever the Lord is convicting you right now and pointing a finger to right now, saying, why did you laugh? Why did you laugh at what the preacher said? Why did you laugh at the truth that was presented to you here today? Why did you smirk in your heart and say this is completely impossible, whether it was in rebellion or just disbelief or whatever it was? And if he continues to press in, don't double down and say, oh, I didn't laugh. And continue on in unbelief. No, surrender. Surrender. Let me read to you in closing Genesis 21, the fulfillment of the promise. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. He told her it was going to happen, and it happened. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son, Isaac, was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. By God's grace, Sarah's unbelieving laughter gave way to laughter of joy and confidence in her God who makes dead things come to life. Now, as she holds her promised baby in her arms, she looks through the flaps of her tent and laughs for joy by faith as she sees a lasting city and a great multitude, one who no one could number from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people standing before the throne of the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
forever. Let's pray. Lord, give us faith in the midst of overwhelming obstacles, knowing that they are nothing to you. In Jesus' good and faithful name we pray all these things. Amen.